Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of May 14th from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, this evening, we're going to be taking a look at the rather controversial question of the ancient empire of Khazaria. Now, you wouldn't think that an empire in the farthest reaches of Europe, in the so-called Dark Ages, would occasion a lot of contemporary controversy, and uh, yet it does. There's a lot of obsession with Khazaria because of what its history may have to say about the origin of the Jews, as many of our listeners are probably aware. But we're also going to be taking a look on this podcast uh, at what its history may have to say about the origins of Ukraine, a question which has received much less scrutiny, but is worthy of attention, particularly in light of the rather grim current events. I should uh, just briefly mention the two most significant sources that I turn to for this podcast. The better known of the two is uh, the classic book by Arthur Kessler, the 13th tribe, the Khazar Empire and its heritage, first published in 1976, and uh, contains a great wealth of information about the Khazars, but it's openly polemical and uh, is definitely arguing a thesis that contrary to the standard history, the Ashkenazim, that is to say, the Jews of Eastern Europe, or the Jews whose origins are in Eastern Europe, who constitute the great majority of Jews on the planet, um, are not actually a Semitic people, but are of Turkic origin and trace their lineage back to the Khazars rather than the Hebrews. And um, a lot of people have um, glommed on to Kessler's book, The Thirteenth Tribe, for rather problematic reasons to be discussed later. The title, The Thirteenth Tribe, is obviously a reference to the Twelve Tribes of Israel, with Kessler arguing that the the Khazars constituted a Thirteenth Tribe, although not actually of Hebrew origin, but of Turkic origin, who became the Eastern European Jews. Okay, the, uh, the second book that I turn to is, in my opinion, the more authoritative and scholarly, of the two, The Jews of Khazaria, by Kevin Allen Brook, published by Jason Aronson of Israel and Northvale, New Jersey, in uh, 1999. Less polemical, more objective, and um, even richer in detail. Both uh, very much worth reading if you want to get in deep as I have over the past few days into the history of the Khazars. Now, the Khazars were a nomadic Turkic people related to the Kazakhs and the Uyghurs further east. Their name appears to be based on the uh, Turkic word root Kaz, meaning wanderer or nomadic sharing this etymology with the Kazakhs of contemporary Kazakhstan, and uh, probably with the Cossacks, who were, of course, the Russian 
settler paramilitary caste, which would conquer or help conquer the Turkic lands of Central Asia for the czars in the 19th century, but also took on some of the culture of those that they conquered, as is so often the case, including their very name, it appears. In the 7th century, the Khazars settled, and the 9th century established an empire on territory straddling what is today southern Russia and eastern Ukraine. Their heartland was the Don Basin, the basin of the Don River, but their territory stretched from what was called the left bank of the Dnieper River. That's from the Russian perspective, looking south, the left bank being the east bank of the Dnieper River. Uh, So their lands would have uh, incorporated what is today the city of Kharkiv, the Donetsk Basin, or the Donbass region, and the Crimean Peninsula. It was bordered on the east by the Volga River and the Caspian Sea, and perhaps a little beyond, in the south by the Caucasus Mountains, and um, in the north, their area of control seems to have just faded into the steppes, which were, of course, very sparsely inhabited at that time. Now, at first, they uh, established what could be called an empire of tents, that is, establishing their lordship over the land, even as they were camping out in their yurts. But eventually, they established a settled society and a capital at a place that the um, ancient chronicles, primarily Arab chronicles, called Etil, which archaeologists today believe is the uh, contemporary fishing village of Samos Delta in the delta of the Volga River near the shores of the Caspian and near the city of Astrakhan. They uh, had two titular rulers. One was the Kagan, traditionally translated as emperor, and the other was the Beg, traditionally translated as king. The Kagan seems to have been more of a ceremonial post and the Beg a more administrative one. Initially, they were followers of Tengri shamanism, which is the indigenous spirituality of the Turkic peoples. But uh, it appears that as they um, built their empire and wanted to be taken seriously by the other great powers of the day, they felt the need to adopt a religion of the book, so to speak. Now, the three significant empires of that part of the world at the time was the Arab empire of the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad, which was, of course, Muslim, the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople, following the nascent Eastern Orthodox Rite, and the Holy Roman Empire of Charlemagne and his successors in Germany, recognized by Rome, and following Catholicism, although the schism in the church Uh, was not yet official at this point. It was still kind of evolving and de facto. And you could also add the uh, Persian Sassanids, who were followers of Zoroastrianism. So the Khazars seem to have felt that they needed their own big monotheistic religion of the book as a claim to imperial power in their own right. And there was a very famous episode in approximately the year 740, when a Khazar ruler by the name of Bulan, sources are divided on whether he was the Khagan or the Beg, 
invited representatives of the three great monotheistic faiths to his court to make the case for their religion. And Christianity was represented by none other than the famous Cyril and Methodius, the two Byzantine missionaries who are today the most important saints in Eastern Orthodoxy. And they were joined by Muslim mullahs from Baghdad and Jewish rabbis. And Bulan, as the story goes, was won over by the rabbis and converted to Judaism and took his empire with him into Judaism, much as Constantine had converted the entire Roman Empire to Christianity upon adopting it. Uh, There is a book about this episode written by a Jewish scholar of Moorish Spain a few centuries later by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, entitled The Kuzari, rendered K-U-Z-A-R-I, The Kuzari, in defense of the despised faith, meaning Judaism, of course, uh, which is published by Torah Classics Library in Jerusalem. They're keeping it in print and supposedly uh, contains an actual transcript of the debates which took place in the court of the Khazar Emperor Bulan, written in Arabic, probably in the 12th century, later translated into Hebrew, and now also available in English. So for the next couple of centuries, the uh, Khazars were playing ball as equals with the other great powers of the time, and intermarrying with their royalty, as can be witnessed from the reign in Constantinople between 750 and 780 of Emperor Leo the Khazar, or Leo IV of the Byzantine Empire. And inevitably, the Khazars also fought with the other great powers. They fought back Arab invasions twice and a Byzantine invasion once, But uh, what finally did them in was an up-and-coming power, the Kievan Rus on the right bank of the Dnieper River, which was, of course, the predecessor state of both contemporary Ukraine and contemporary Russia. But it was situated where contemporary Ukraine is, particularly its earliest colonel in western Ukraine, right bank of the Dnieper. And in 965, the armies of the Kievan Rus crossed the Dnieper, invaded Khazaria, won the war, and reduced Khazaria to a tributary state of the Kievan Rus. Now, this proved not to be in the long-term interests of the Rus, because the Khazars had sort of been serving them as a uh, kind of buffer state, keeping the nomadic would-be conquerors of the eastern steppes at bay. And once reduced to tributary status, they were less effective and motivated in this capacity, it seems. And in 1240, the Mongols came in, swept across their territory from the east. Uh, The Kievan Rus itself became a tributary state of the Mongol Golden Horde. And uh, Khazaria ceased to exist altogether, and the Khazars at that time quote-unquote, disappeared from history, as the saying goes. And what actually happened to them is a matter of great contestation. Now, again, you would think it would be the proverbial footnote to history, but it has taken on rather emotionally loaded import for political reasons. 
as we shall see. Now, there are three questions that the scholars are debating regarding Khazar Judaism. And the first concerns the origins of Khazar Judaism and whether it was just kind of um, adopted arbitrarily by diktat of Begbulan, or if it was more of an organic process. And Kevin Allen Brook offers a lot of evidence that there had already been, even before the conversion, a lot of contact, particularly between Armenian Jewish traders coming up into Khazaria. And then after the conversion, uh, lots of Jews who were fleeing persecution in the Byzantine Empire and in Persia took refuge in Khazaria. So he's arguing, Brooke is arguing that it wasn't, you know, merely this um, autocratic diktat coming on down from the court of Bulan that everybody had to adopt Judaism, but that it was actually more of an organic process of cultural transmission. Which leads to the second question, that of the completeness of the conversion. Now, whether it was only the elites who converted or the commoners in general. And Brooke argues that at first, at least, there was actually a kind of a syncretistic amalgam of Judaism and Tengri's shamanism, as can be evidenced from the engravings on uh, Khazar tombstones from this period, which were mixing Jewish and Turkic tribal symbols. But that as time went on, Judaism prevailed more and more. And finally, the third and uh, most contested question is uh, that of the fate of the Khazars. All right, so first you've got the standard history, which was what I always assumed was true until I became aware of the, you know, so-called Khazar thesis of Arthur Kessler. The standard history, which is that, you know, Jews who had long ago fled Roman persecution in Palestine and settled in Western Europe were expelled from one country after another, beginning with the Edict of Expulsion in England in 1290, followed by similar edicts in France and various German states. They went east to Germanic and later to Slavic lands, adopted Yiddish as their language, and became the Ashkenazim. Now, Kessler is arguing that that's not actually what happened. What actually happened is that the Khazars fled west after they were scattered to Slavic and later to Germanic lands, adopted Yiddish as their language, and became the Ashkenazim. So the Ashkenazim, the Jews of Eastern Europe, who of course constitute the great majority of Jews in the world, have Turkic rather than Hebrew roots. And this is tied into, you know, the whole ugly notion of so-called fake Jews, which is a term that Kessler absolutely would have abhorred, but his work is often invoked in defense of this notion that you hear over and over again from internet anti-Semites that see the Ashkenazim aren't really descended from the ancient Hebrews. They're actually descended from the Khazars, so they aren't really Jews. So this is so problematic. Now, what's critical here is cultural transmission, which was obviously very real. And, you know, literal genetic descent, as in 
who begat whom is not really relevant to contemporary identity, unless you adhere either to Nazi theories of genetic determinism or, ironically, to the Orthodox Jewish dogmas of halakhic law, in which everything is based on matrilineal descent. Now, speaking for myself as, you know, how do I, Bill Weinberg, fit into this question of history and identity, I am perfectly willing to concede that I may trace no genetic descent whatsoever to the ancient Hebrews. And by halakhic law, I am not Jewish, because the name Weinberg and the Jewish ancestry is on my father's side, not my Italian mom's. But nobody is going to tell me that I am not Jewish. And it isn't about practicing Judaism either, because I don't. I'm an atheist Jew, and there is no contradiction there. And if you think there is, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in anyone telling me that they know more about what I am than I do. Thank you very much. So I continue to be amazed by this um, persistent obsession with the whole question of who begat whom in the contemporary world of 2022 and high-speed internet and all the rest. And, you know, there's all of this controversy over the so-called Kohanim DNA, which is supposedly the genetic marker of the ancient Hebrew priestly class. And the science itself has become politicized, with research purporting to confirm the Kohanim marker among the Ashkenazim being touted by the Zionists and defenders of Israel, and research purporting to deny the Kohanim marker among the contemporary Ashkenazim being touted by partisans of the Palestinians. Now, to my mind, this is all so pointless and intellectually toxic. And particularly for all of you partisans of the Palestinians out there, you know, among whom I count myself, attaching importance to this question is paradoxically loaning legitimacy to the precepts of Zionism, as if the Palestinians would have any less of a right to self-determination in their homeland if it could be somehow proven that the Ashkenazim are the direct descendants of the ancient Hebrews. And furthermore, it makes even less sense in the year 2022 because there has been a demographic shift in Israel over the past generations, and the Ashkenazim no longer constitute a majority. I mean, they're still the most favored class in Israel, but um, they've been overtaken demographically by the Mizrahi, that is to say, the Arab and Persian Jews. And the Arab Jews, that is, those from Yemen and Morocco and so on, are obviously Semitic. Nobody can contest that. Now, I just want to read into the record here some text from Arthur Kessler's book, The Thirteenth Tribe, in which he anticipated that his words would be exploited and that his research and his work would be exploited in precisely the way that it is, in fact, being exploited today. And, uh, you know, <laughs> all of you people who, uh, you know, point to Arthur Kessler in defense of the notion that the Ashkenazim are fake Jews, quote unquote, uh, you know, you might want to actually read the book, Perish the Thought. Um, I'm going to read one page from Appendix 4, Some Implications, Israel and the Diaspora. Quote, 
While this book deals with past history, it unavoidably carries certain implications for the present and future. In the first place, I am aware of the danger that it might be maliciously misinterpreted as a denial of the state of Israel's right to exist. But that right is not based on the hypothetical origins of the Jewish people, nor on the mythological covenant of Abraham with God. It is based on international law, i.e. on the United Nations decision in 1947 to partition Palestine, once a Turkish province, then a British-mandated territory, into an Arab and Jewish state. Whatever the Israeli citizens' racial origins, and whatever illusions they entertain about them, their state exists de jure and de facto, and cannot be undone except by genocide. Without entering into controversial issues, one may add, as a matter of historical fact, that the partition of Palestine was the result of a century of peaceful Jewish immigration and pioneering effort, which provide the ethical justification for the state's legal existence. Whether the chromosomes of its people contain genes of Khazar or Semitic, Roman or Spanish origin, is irrelevant and cannot affect Israel's right to exist, nor the moral obligation of any civilized person, Gentile or Jew, to defend that right. Even the geographical origin of the native Israelis' parents or grandparents tends to be forgotten in the bubbling racial melting pot. The problem of the Khazar infusion a thousand years ago, however fascinating, is irrelevant to modern Israel. End quote. Okay, now, this is not my view precisely, because I'm anti-Zionist. And I recognize that the um, you know century of Jewish immigration and pioneering effort in Palestine was not always all that peaceful. That the Palestinians have been expropriated and usurped and dispossessed by the Zionist project and are entitled to recovery of their territories and self-determination. I do not think that a Jewish state can only be undone by genocide, although genocide is definitely a threat. And all of the rhetoric about driving the Jews into the sea is unhelpful, <clears throat> just as all the Israeli rhetoric about so-called transfer of the Palestinians across the Jordan River into Jordan is unhelpful, to say the damn least. But I think that it is at least in theory possible for Israel to evolve or devolve, depending on how you want to look at it, into a secular state rather than a Jewish state with equal rights for all of its citizens, which, contrary to popular belief, it currently does not have. And I'll also point out that even the uh, United Nations decision of 1947 was um, never approved by the Security Council, only the General Assembly and other uh, oft-overlooked fact. But Kessler's fundamental point in that appendix, that the whole question of the you know genetic origins of the Eastern European Jews is irrelevant to the contemporary political question of the fate of Israel and Palestine, 
is absolutely 100% correct. And, uh, you know, it's very telling <laughs> that he felt the need, you know, he was prescient enough to, uh, you know, feel the need to um, add that appendix, you know, anticipating quite correctly how his um, words would be seized upon by those with ugly agendas. All right, now, uh, switching gears a little bit, for all of the obsession with what the fate of the Khazars has to say about the origins of the Jews, there's comparatively little interest in what the fate of the Khazars has to say about the origins of the Ukrainians, their neighbors, and eventually their overlords, in the Kievan Rus. Now, the Slavs were arriving on the right bank of the Dnieper about the same time that the Khazars were arriving on the left bank. And some evidence suggests that the city of Kiev, or Kiev, which was the very first kernel of what would become the Ukrainian state and the Russian state, was actually established by the Khazars. Apparently, before it was Kiev, it was a settlement by the name of Sambatas, just a little uh, trading post on the Dnieper River. And it is speculated that this name is derived from the legendary river Sambatian, which Jewish literature describes as the border beyond which the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel were exiled, which would point to a, uh, a Khazar origin and the possibility that Sambatas was a Khazar town before it was conquered by the Rus and its Viking allies, the Varangians, in the ninth century. Prince Vladimir, Vladimir the Great, the first ruler of the Rus to accept Christianity, is said to have held debates in Kiev in the year 988 before deciding which religion of the book he would accept, following the example of Bulan the Khazar some two centuries earlier. Very interesting. Now, returning to um, the Jewish question and how it intersects with the Ukrainian question, Kevin Allen Brook is basically arguing that, you know, the standard history of the origins of the Ashkenazim and, uh, you know, the so-called Khazar thesis are not mutually exclusive, but that it was actually a combination of the two, and that the Khazars were a part of the ethnogenesis of the Ashkenazim. And, indeed, that there was a third element, in addition to Jews migrating from the West and Khazars being dispersed from their homeland in the East, there were also Jews who were already in Eastern Europe before either the Western European Jews or the Khazars arrived. Small communities of Jewish traders who had been making their way up from Greece and the Caucasus for many generations before the arrival of either group. And that, you know, yeah, I mean, he doesn't really um, discuss Kessler by name all that much. Brooke does not really discuss Kessler by name all that much. But basically, what he's saying is that, yeah, you know, Kessler was onto something, but he overstates the case. But certainly the Khazars were a part of the ethnogenesis of the Ashkenazim. And the further east you go, the greater the Khazar element in the ancestry of the Jews. So he uh, estimates that some 60% 
of the contemporary Ukrainian Jews can trace their um, lineage back to the back to the Khazars, more so than you know the a higher proportion than the Polish Jews, Hungarian Jews, German Jews, etc. So the odds are very good that some of the prominent Ukrainian Jews who are now in the news may, if we are concerned with the whole question of who begat whom, trace their ancestry to the Khazars, including the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, Volodymyr Groisman, the prime minister of Ukraine under the previous government of Petro Poroshenko, Zelensky's predecessor as president, Vitaly Klitschko, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, the mayor of Kiev, who is famously a, uh, a former boxer, much as Zelensky is a former TV star, and uh, also said to be of Jewish background, and um, Olga Vasilevskaya Smagliuk, who is the representative in the Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, for Buka, the Kiev suburb where the Russians committed terrible massacres, left hundreds dead, who is now vocally accusing the Russian occupation forces of genocide, and is also of Jewish background. Then there are two Jewish micro-ethnicities, as you might say, in Ukraine, and particularly in the Crimean Peninsula, which is now occupied and illegally annexed by Russia, which have a very good claim indeed to being the direct descendants of the Khazars. One is the Karaites, who actually constitute their own sect. They are so-called non-rabbinical Jews. That is to say, they reject the Talmud as um, non-canonical. That is to say, the commentaries written by the rabbis in the diaspora, beginning with the um, Babylonian exile, and uh, revere the Torah, that is to say, the first five books of the Bible, exclusively. And as near as I can tell, claim to be following the religion of the ancient Hebrews as closely as possible. And the other is the Krimchaks, who are the Tartar Jews of the Crimean Peninsula. Now, the Crimean Tartars, just to briefly review the history that we've discussed in previous podcasts, are a um, remnant population of the Golden Horde, which was actually a mix of Mongols and Turkic Tartar tribes with whom they were allied. Now, the Golden Horde was in charge of what's now Russia and Ukraine for um, some two centuries but its inheritors would ultimately be reduced to a small indigenous population under Russian imperial rule. Reduced to a small enclave in the Crimean Peninsula, persecuted under the Tsars, deported to Siberia under Stalin, allowed to return to an independent Ukraine after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and were granted local autonomy under Ukrainian authorities, which has now been abrogated under Russian annexation of Crimea, and they are again facing persecution. Well, the uh, the Krimchaks are the Tartar-speaking Jews of the Crimean Peninsula. So, Turkic Jews living in the former territory of Khazaria, almost certainly the direct descendants of Khazars, 
who adopted the Tartar language, which was closely related to their own, while clinging to their Jewish identity. Now, I just want to point out that um, two years ago in 2021, Ukraine passed a law on indigenous peoples explicitly recognizing the right to local autonomy and cultural survival of the Crimean Tartars, the Krimchaks, and the Karaites. Now, of course, these people are mostly in the Crimean Peninsula, which had already, by 2021, for seven years, been under Russian occupation and illegal annexation. So you could argue that this law was more symbolic than anything else, but symbols are important. And certainly, it's very telling that the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada, passed this law, President Zelensky signed it, and Russia has refused to recognize it, and in fact has been persecuting the Crimean Tartars and denying their right to self-government in the Crimean Peninsula. So, once again, this shows Putin's so-called denazification of Ukraine in an extremely perverse and ironic light. It is Putin's Russia that is persecuting the Tartars, emulating the czars, and instating official Islamophobia, while Ukraine is repudiating Islamophobia and anti-Semitism alike and embracing the dignity and autonomy of those Muslim and Jewish indigenous peoples. And uh, the final thing that I want to say is that there is often a reluctance by governments around the world to recognize these surviving Jewish micro-ethnicities, while there is an eagerness to do so on the part of Israel and its cultural emissaries around the world who ultimately seek to lure these people into emigrating to Israel or even to becoming settlers on the occupied West Bank, and basically to exploit them as demographic cannon fodder in the colonialist project of Zionism, that is, building a Jewish settler state in historic Palestine. But as an anti-Zionist who supports the cultural survival of Jewish ethnicities around the world, I say that anti-Zionism cannot be predicated on the erasure of Jewish identity, but on the contrary, must be predicated on Jews being able to boogie in public with perfect freedom and dignity in the diaspora. And it is my hope that the Karaites and Krimchaks will have a place in the current struggle for a free and multicultural Ukraine in repudiation of the Russian neo-colonialist project of perversely rebuilding the empire of the czars in the 21st century. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org, where I blog about such matters every day. Please support us on Patreon. I support myself as a freelance writer, and since the war in Ukraine began, I have been foregoing freelance writing work to concentrate on these rather in-depth and exhaustively researched podcasts and blogs about the war in Ukraine and related matters. 
If I'm going to continue doing this, I need your support on Patreon. We currently have 36 supporters. I am asking you, dear listener, right now to go to patreon.com slash countervortex and become number 37 to the tune of either $1 or $2 per weekly podcast. And if you choose two, you get to uh, choose a topic for me to discuss on the podcast. So please join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.